Well, good morning. That was enthusiastic. It is good to be here, and I'm glad to see you all this morning. I want to welcome you to Christ Community Bible Church, where we are a church that is trusting Christ and treasuring Christ. We are trusting Christ to do the impossible, and we treasure Christ as our deepest delight. And together this morning, we will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we are just glad to be here. Beloved in Christ, I am grateful to be with you this morning. My name is Richard Kasky, and I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Bible Church. And this morning, we are completing a three-part series titled The Return of the King. In part one, we were in the prophet Isaiah, chapter nine, which said in part, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he will establish an everlasting kingdom and sit on the throne of David. We had that promise of the king that is coming, and we look forward to that. And and in fact, the king did come. And we know from Scripture, Jesus Christ came, fulfilled those promises, and, and, uh, and went back to be with the Father. But in part two, we looked at the book of Genesis, and we went all the way back to chapter three in Genesis, to the very fall where Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And when they sinned in the garden, we got the first promise of a Savior. The first promise of the Messiah, the first promise, the first prophecy in Scripture is all the way back in Genesis when, when God said that uh, the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve would crush his head and he would destroy the works of sin. So we now know that the promised king and the serpent crusher is Jesus Christ. He is the God-man who came to conquer sin and death by taking the punishment that was due to us. He took our sin upon himself. He died on the cross. He rose again. And scripture further tells us that he's coming back to establish his kingdom that was promised long ago. This morning we will be in the, in the book of Isaiah. Spending a lot of time in Isaiah, that's great. But when we look at prophets in Scripture, sometimes they can be difficult to understand. They're painting a picture for us, and they were indeed prophesying for the people of their day. So they had a message for the people of their time and their day, a message from God to give to them. But yet they saw things things they didn't even understand. And they saw things out there that um, they longed to understand and they inquired of God to explain it to them. But the, the prophets were told that they were not serving themselves, but serving us. In, in the epistle to, uh, called First Peter, it says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. In other words, they were predicting things, they were prophesying things about in the future, but it didn't make sense to them exactly how this was all going to fit together. It says it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the prophets themselves struggled to understand what they were saying. Now, the best explanation that I've heard, the one I like to use, the one that makes sense to me, is they were looking out into the future, and it was beyond the ability they had to make sense of how far that was. So the human eye, for example, really can't distinguish distance beyond about 30 feet, just based off geometry of the eyes, about 30 feet. Now, we, our mind makes up for that by taking in other things into account to figure that out. But the picture we have is the, the prophets were looking out at what looked like a mountain range. What they didn't know was it was a series of mountain ranges. That when they looked at it from their position, they saw one range. But as you travel towards that mountain range, you might come up onto one peak. And then you realize there are still more mountain ranges beyond you. And so the prophets, when they looked out, they saw the first coming of Christ. They saw the coming of the king. But they saw other things as well. They would see the return of the king beyond that. And they couldn't make sense of the timing. And we have been blessed because at least now we are past that first advent and we can at least see that that has taken place and there are still still some things for the future. So as the prophets saw the future events, we call this kind of a, a little fancy theological term, Uh, called prophetic foreshortening. They couldn't determine the time between uh, the events from their vantage point. But but they wrote about it as they did. So we'll be in Isaiah chapter 11. And um, Isaiah uh, is written uh, prior to the uh, destruction of the the, uh, nation of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, by Assyria which occurred about 100 years after Isaiah's writing. So, what we look at here, and, and we see in chapter 10, just before chapter 11, are events that took place about 600 B.C. And so, if, if we were to look at verse 34 of chapter 10, that's about 600 B.C., and the very next verse takes place 600 years later with the birth of Christ. And the prophet doesn't see that. He just looks out, he sees the destruction of the northern kingdom by Assyria, and immediately sees the first coming of Christ. And so, for this reason, we have to pay attention as we study the prophets, and we look at them. So now we know about the first coming of the king, and, uh, and, and we look uh, now to see what Scripture says. So let me open us up here in prayer, just to uh, ask the Lord to help us with this uh, since prophecy is, is a challenge and we want to make sure we, we get it right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you expectantly. We come to your word. We come expecting that you will reveal to us uh, more about you. 
And Lord, as we are studying the return of the King, as we are studying Christ, Lord, we pray that uh, you will show us what we need to learn from this text. And Lord, we pray that you will use this time for our good and for your glory. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Isaiah was written about 700 B.C. Now, to give you some perspective, Abraham lived about 2,000 B.C. About 1,000 years later, you would have King David, about 1,000 B.C. And then, 300 years later, the prophet Isaiah. But what had happened in there is that after King David, King Solomon ruled, and he ruled all of Israel. But when he passed away, his son came to power, and the kingdom of Israel divided into what we call the northern kingdom, or Israel. By the way, that's sometimes called Ephraim. If so, if you look in your scripture and you see Ephraim, it's referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And there was a divided kingdom. And Isaiah was prophesying in the southern kingdom, in Judah. He was in the capital city of Jerusalem when he did this. And as he's prophesying, a few things are happening. Now, when Adam read from Isaiah chapter 6, it said, In the year King Uzziah died, King Uzziah had reigned on the throne for 52 years. For the most part, he had been a good king. There had been prosperity. But towards the end, King Uzziah began to stumble. And at this time, the nation of Assyria was growing in power, and they were starting to expand into neighboring nations, and they were a cruel people. If we were to look at the Assyrian nation, they had a foreign policy that basically said, we're going to go in, and we're going to conquer you, this people, and we're going to take a lot of them out, and we're going to scatter them among other nations that we've conquered, and we're going to take people from other nations that we conquered and put them in the land that we just conquered. We don't want them to be unified in ethnicity. And so this is where we get the Samaritans in the New Testament. And that's why the, the Jews in the South would consider them kind of half-breeds, is because they weren't fully Jewish. But see, the Assyrian nation, they did that, and their rules were simple. You pay taxes. Everybody pays taxes. But basically, you were being, going to be forced to worship the Assyrian gods and to pray for Assyria. And so this nation was very cruel, and they're doing these things, and there's a lot of trepidation. And so Isaiah is prophesying, he said, and in the year King Uzziah died, and you can imagine the concern among the people. You can imagine that the people were, were distraught. What's going to happen? What king is going to come? What's going to happen to us? And they're worried about who's going to replace Uzziah on the throne. And what's God's answer? In chapter 6, he said, and I saw God seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, Isaiah, you're worried about this little throne on earth? Don't you worry about that. Because there's this throne in heaven where God rules, and God is in charge, and God is sovereign over all things. And throughout the book of Isaiah, we have this hope, a message of hope amidst the the, uh, the message of judgment that also comes. So when he began his prophetic ministry, 
both Israel and Judah were steeped in wickedness and rebellion against God. Isaiah's message was particular, was, was primarily two parts. First, Isaiah prophesied judgment. The people had broken their covenant they had with God, and God was going to punish them for their wickedness. And through Isaiah, God presented his accusations against them. He accused them of idolatry and heartless worship. They were simply going through the motions with no real worship of Yahweh, their God. In chapter 1, God says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah was going to pronounce judgment, and he did. God also accused them of oppression through theft and bribery. Those with wealth used those who were in positions of power to steal from those who were without wealth or positions of authority, particularly taking advantage of, of widows and orphans. In the first few chapters of Isaiah, God lays out his indictment of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem. Then in chapter 5, God lists the transgressions to include materialism, drunkenness, doubters of God, calling good evil and evil good and conceit. The city of Jerusalem, which was supposed to be a righteous city, had become, according to chapter 1, verse 21, a whore and filled with murderers. They had perverted justice and this would not slip the notice of God. And God would use his prophets to speak to the people. Two weeks ago, Jared talked about Old Testament prophets. They had the most thrilling and yet the most dangerous job in the world. They spoke for the living God. But often their message was to tell the people how they were failing and how they were suffering because of it. When we read the books of history in the Old Testament, we read what happened. We can read about famines and conquest. The prophets tell us why those things happened. They explain the failures and they prescribe the solution. While being a prophet of God would have been thrilling, it would not necessarily have been safe. For Isaiah, it would even have been very discouraging. When God commissioned Isaiah to prophesy, God told him that the people would hear, but not understand. They would see, but not perceive. The hearts of the people would be dulled to Isaiah's message. So Isaiah asked, how long would this be? And God's answer was, until they are conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God used a picture of a mighty tree being cut down and burned, and only the stump remained. Judah was that tree that would be cut down because of iniquity. But this leads us to the second message Isaiah had for the people. The second message was hope. Listen to how God answers Isaiah's question in Isaiah 6, when he asked, how long would the people rebel? And God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. 
and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah's second message was hope, and he pictures it as a growth from a burned stump, and he calls it the holy seed. Last week, Jared took us to Genesis chapter 3, and we looked at the tragic fall in the Garden of Eden. The pinnacle of God's creation was mankind, and they were unique from all other created objects or beings. Mankind alone holds the title image bearers of God. God created man in his own image and placed him in the garden to rule over God's creation and to be God's representatives in the garden. So when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all of creation fell under the curse of sin. The Apostle Paul describes this in Romans. He said, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not, on, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who, uh, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So you see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't just Adam and Eve and mankind that suffered. All of creation suffered. All of creation was cast into this dismal realm of decay and death. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve were to have dominion over all of the creation, over the animals, including birds and fish. The plants would, would readily yield fruit to them, and they would eat from those plants. And all the animals had plants to eat for their food. And to demonstrate Adam's authority over the animals, God brought them all to Adam so that he could name them. This was the perfect sinless garden of Eden. But sin changed all of that. And all of creation suffered because of sin. And God pronounced judgment. And his judgment was just for the punishment fit the crime. Adam's crime was that he rebelled against God who was an authority over him. God told him not to eat of the fruit and God had all authority to make the rules and to, man, and to demand obedience to them. So for this crime of rebellion, creation, which was supposed to be in submission to Adam, would rebel against him. Instead of the earth bringing forth vegetation readily and easily, Adam would now have to toil by the sweat of his brow to raise crops for food. Moreover, his own wife, who was to be in submission to Adam's authority in the family, would rebel against his authority too. Her desire would be to be the head of the family, but instead, the head of the family would no longer lead and protect, but he would now rule over her. And in the midst of this episode, we have the very first prophecy in the Bible for a Savior. At that moment of sin, God revealed his plan to redeem sinful mankind. He promised a seed of the woman who would save humanity. That seed would crush the head of the serpent and redeem 
all of creation. We fast forward in time to about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. God set apart a man named Abraham and told him that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. A thousand years after that, God raised up King David, a man after God's own heart. It would be through David's line, a direct descendant of Abraham, that an everlasting king would come who would rule over all nations and establish his kingdom. Prophets and psalmists would remind the people of the coming Savior and King. And Isaiah, too, would tell of his coming. So Isaiah has two messages, judgment and hope. The judgment would be severe and many would perish. Yet God would still fulfill his promises and he would keep his covenants with the people of Israel. So our passage this morning, finally getting to it, describes this coming of the king and the kingdom. Chapter 11 said, There shall come forth a root from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is the message of hope. There are multiple promises made in this single verse. First, we are told that the king would come from Jesse. Why Jesse and not David? The promised king was through David, and King David was called many things. He was the apple of God's eye. He was called a man after God's own heart. He walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, God says. Future kings would be compared to David. Regarding the good kings, God would say he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. Or he walked in the way of David his father. And of the bad kings, God would say, you have not been like my servant David. Or his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. So David was, was called the man after God's own heart. He was the king that all other kings would be judged against. Now we know David had many flaws, but yet this is how God saw him. But yet this shoot would come forth from the stump of Jesse because this shoot that's going to come forth from the stump of Jesse is a second David. All those things that were true of King David, all the good things would be perfected in this new king. This king will bear fruit. It is in this king that all the promises made to Abraham and to David would be fulfilled. And we remember the imagery of the stump. This takes us back to chapter 6 where Isaiah and Judah would be cut down. Isaiah said Judah would be cut down like a mighty tree and all that would be left was a stump. But this stump would still produce the holy seed. This seed is the one that was promised in Genesis. Not only would this king fulfill all the promises made to Abraham and David, he would fulfill the original promise of the one who could defeat the serpent and thereby conquer sin and death itself. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, verse 2, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes 
by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. When this king arrives, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And this reminds us of what we see in Matthew. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This was a permanent anointing of the Holy Spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, there was not a permanent anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon people for a time, and then the Holy Spirit could leave. We see that the builders of the tabernacle were anointed with the Holy Spirit to give them skill to build the tabernacle. We see that King Saul was anointed with the Spirit, and it was taken away from him. King David was anointed with the Spirit. And when he had sinned and his sin was called out by by Nathan the prophet, he would cry out in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew that he could lose that anointing of the Holy Spirit. But now, with the coming of Christ, when believers are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, it's permanent. This is part of the new covenant that the Holy Spirit comes upon believers today, the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. We don't have to fear losing the Holy Spirit. Now we can still grieve the Holy Spirit and we can still sin, but believers will not lose the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit rests on this king, it will impact every word, action, and decision. He'll have the spirit of of wisdom and understanding. And wisdom is not just merely knowing how to live rightly, but it's a knowledge gained through the practice of doing what is right again and again. This king will act with justice because of wisdom and understanding, and he will have the, the spirit of counsel and might. The king will use his power in righteousness and not for personal gain. He will have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king will know the will of the Lord and obey every command. He will indeed be the man after God's own heart. He will walk in perfect obedience to the Lord. And the reign of this king will be like no other. The guiding principle will be his delight in the fear of the Lord. He will be so connected with, with God the Father, that he will delight in carrying out the Father's will. All of his capacity for joy and delight will be focused on one thing and one thing alone, the fear of the Lord. Look at what happens when he does that. He will judge rightly. He will not judge by appearances and the words of others. He will have the perfect understanding and he will know how to judge rightly in all things. And unlike the 
judges in Judah who accepted bribes and thereby preferred justice and oppressed the poor, this king will judge with righteousness. In fact, the fear of the Lord so directs his life that he is described as having belts of righteousness and faithfulness. Now, do you see the theological connection between fearing the Lord and behavior? So I'll make an allusion to what A.W. Tozer said and then kind of paraphrase as best I can what one of my professors had said. And he said, the most important thoughts you think are the thoughts you think when you think about God. For what you think about God will determine every dimension of your life. The most important thoughts you think are the thoughts you think when you think about God. For what you think about God will determine every dimension of your life. You see, when we have that perfect fear of the Lord, when we understand who God is, and we not only want to live and walk in obedience, but we delight in obedience, and we delight in the fear of the Lord, that will determine every dimension of our lives. And that's what this king will do. How do we learn then to fear the Lord? We learn this through his word, the Holy Scriptures, the sacred text. The Lord has given us all we need for life and godliness. We are to love and treasure his word. It revives the soul. It makes us wise and it rejoices our hearts. We should desire the scriptures more than gold, even refined gold. And it is sweeter than honey. And in keeping it, there is great reward. This is how we get to know and to fear the Lord is through his word. And in this first part, we see at the beginning the shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse. That is the first advent of Christ. That is the, the arrival of the king, the promise that had been made. The prophecies were fulfilled in Christ at his coming when he was born in Bethlehem and he lived on this earth. But immediately, as we say, the prophets are looking out and they see that. They, they see at the end of chapter 10 that Assyria destroys and conquers Israel, the northern kingdom. But then they see immediately with it, what looks like to them with it, is the coming of the king. And then immediately he sees with it, the king establishing his kingdom. But now we have traveled, we have traveled towards this. And we now know that, that Christ came 2,000 years ago. The king came, but he hasn't yet returned. He hasn't yet come and established his kingdom as the scriptures say he will. And so the prophets are looking at this and they're trying to make sense of it. And so they go on and they see this, this vision now this, that they looked out and they see the kingdom. And it looks like it's a restoration of, of, of the Garden of Eden. It says the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together 
and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not destroy, hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See how quickly we jumped from the destruction at the hands of Assyria, or destruction of Assyria there, to the first advent of Christ and now to his kingdom. An example of how the prophets looked and tried to make sense of it. This is a restoration of what Adam and Eve had experienced. Creation has grown for this time when Christ would redeem creation. Now, all, even now though, and although we can still see beauty in creation, we have only a faded image of what it once was. It's kind of looking at an old photograph that has that sepia color and is a little bit granulated. We don't have the nice crisp picture or the color to fill in. So we can make out what the image is and what it was, but we cannot see its full glory with all of its color and beauty and details that demonstrate the intricate beauty of the original. So when Christ redeems all of creation, the predator and the prey will be reconciled. Wolves and lambs don't get along. One of them is food and the other is hungry. And that's what we have today. The same with the leopard and the goat, the lion and the calf, the cow and the bear, even as it says here, a mama bear with her cub. Today, a mama bear with her cub, you won't go near her. But in the kingdom, it'll be different. Notice also that carnivores will become herbivores again. Do you remember in Genesis it said that God had given the plants for the animals to eat? In the garden, the animals were herbivores. Now, they are carnivores. In the kingdom, they will once again eat plants. And this is amazing. And yet, one of the arguments that comes out is, how will the lion eat straw? Look at their teeth. They're made for eating meat, not eating straw. That's not the biggest thing that I see in this text. <laughs> this is amazing what's going to happen. When God redeems creation, it's going to be very different. Whether he gives them dental implants, I don't know. I'm sure that's possible. But what's true from Scripture is Christ is going to redeem creation and it's going to be different than we've seen. And finally, the animal kingdom won't pose any threat to mankind. The wolf, the leopard, and the lion will be led by a child. A young child will play near the cobra and even stick his hand into the adder's den. There will be no fear, no threat. If we go again look back into Genesis at the curse after the sin, God said he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that has been true. God's going to remove that. 
there will be no more fear of the serpent when Christ returns. When Christ sets up his kingdom, that curse will be broken as well. And even a child can pay, play in front of a cobra or stick its hand, stick his hand down into the, the den of the adder. Creation itself will be redeemed. So what is the cause of this? It's the knowledge of the Lord. This will be the characteristic of the kingdom. All of creation will be full of the knowledge of the Lord to the extent that even the animal kingdom will be radically transformed. And finally, in that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for all nations. Notice now that Christ is the root of Jesse, not the branch. In in verse 1, he was the branch or the shoot that grew out from the stump. Now, Christ is mentioned as the root. Christ was before Jesse. Christ was before David. Christ was before Abraham. Christ was before creation. And they came out of it, yet Christ grew out of it. Christ was the promised one that came. In fact, Jesus uh, would make this claim for himself when he was questioned by the Jews. When, when they compared him, then they said, well, Abraham, are you greater than, than Abraham, our father? And they had a discussion about Abraham. And Jesus answered, he said, before Abraham was, I am. In this great proclamation, Christ declared himself to be the eternal God and the promised one that would come through Abraham and through David. And Christ declared that truth. And here we see it again in that day, um, the root of Jesse. So Christ is the root. Christ is the, the shoot. He's the branch that comes forth. And yet even then, the people didn't understand that. Probably one of my favorite miracles of the New Testament is when Jesus healed the man who had been born blind. In John chapter 9, we have an account of this. There's a man who had been born blind, and Jesus heals him. And the man goes, doesn't realize who Jesus was. He didn't see him. He goes away, and, and all of a sudden he's healed, and the people are amazed. And they're wondering, how could this be? Tell us what happened. And he would tell the story again and again how Jesus healed him. And then the leaders of the Jews, who were not pleased with Jesus anyway, would ask him, and they called him in, and they interrogated him, and they said, what happened? And he told him again. And they kept rejecting him. And yet this man, who was born blind, knew enough of Scripture that he's starting to get it. And he says, in all of history, there has never been healing for a man who was born blind. That has never occurred before. And yet in the Old Testament, it says when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. And this man puts it together. He said, if God is going to give sight to the blind, and this has never happened before, let me tell you who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And this man would then be forbidden from temple worship because he chose to follow Jesus at that point. 
And Jesus is the signal for all nations. Of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The kingdom, you see, is not just for Jews only. See, when the promise was made in Genesis 12 to Abraham, he said, you will be a blessing to all the nations. That was a promise that was given. And that promise is being fulfilled. The Messiah is not just for the Jews, but it's for all the world, for all the nations of the world. He would be a blessing. So how do we take this passage, the one that, that, that begins with the first advent, begins with the birth of Christ, and then quickly moves to this kingdom that we see and, and this, this amazing redemption and restoration? How do we apply this to our lives? Well, I've got a couple of thoughts. First, when we read that it says... His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. We are called to be a people of righteousness. The righteous must direct all that we say, and righteousness must direct all that we say and do. It must impact how we treat others. Specifically, the righteousness governs how we discern truth. It should not be by appearances. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. But you see, this isn't how we're wired, it seems, today. We often judge by appearance. While it may be common today, the text is teaching us that we should not judge unjustly due to different culture or socioeconomic status. That means that we don't automatically justify or vilify the poor. We don't automatically justify or vilify even the rich. We don't judge by appearances. We are to judge rightly, the scripture says. We are to be righteous, and that is driven by a fear of the Lord. So we are called to be a people of righteousness, and that is driven by our fear of the Lord. Second, we are to remember that the glory of Jesus Christ is our final home and rest. Brokenness, Affliction, suffering, and hardships are all as real as they feel. What we go through in this life is real and we will not minimize the difficulty of it. So what we do instead is we fixate on the king. We must be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We must imprint this truth on our souls. We can stand in the midst of suffering. We can even praise God in the midst of suffering. And just as Isaiah gave hope to the people of Judah who were near the brink of an impending and horrific suffering, we too have hope. And the message of this is that hope that we look to the coming of Christ. He will return. He made that promise. It is true. And that is our hope. Do you know the king? This is the king promised from long ago. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all of mankind, everyone after that, was impacted by this sin. We all experienced spiritual death because of that. 
We could not know God. And we were without hope that unless God chose to act on our behalf, we were without hope. But even before this, God had planned for our salvation. And he planned for his own son would come and he would become, the very son of God would become fully human. And he would live on this earth and he would walk on this earth and he would live that perfect sinless life that we could not live. And he would pay the penalty for our sins as only the God man could do. Do you know the king? Jesus came so that we could have everlasting life. That is the promise. There's nothing that we do by our own works. There's no good deeds that we can do to earn salvation. Instead, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know the king? If you don't, I encourage you to come and meet with one of the elders after the service. We would love to talk to you about that because Jesus Christ came for our salvation and no matter what we're going through today, we have that hope of his return. Christ will come back. He will establish his kingdom. He will redeem and he will restore. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The risen Lord said, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We pray for the return of the King. As is it, is it written, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We all pray together, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.